right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. A 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And MLS number 3030. The Home Depot is cooking up new ways to start summer here and bring summer home. From online ordering to free delivery and convenience store pickup, we're helping make sure taking care of your summer projects is a breeze. And summer savings on all your favorite brands make things even easier. So freshen up the deck, fire up the grill, summer's here, and it's as close. All right, here we go. The Home Depot, how do doers get more done? Life, Love, and the Grind yeah, is sir. sponsored by Life, Love, and the Grind is limited. And to no, the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management. Welcome back, guys. Uh, on another Sunday, we got a very exciting show for us today. I'm sure Sarah will work on the echo that we're hearing right now, but I'm on with uh, uh, Dante Diesel Williams. We're going to get into why um, that nickname is the place. As always, my buddy, Sean Allen. Um, this is going to be a show where we really delve into the issues. Um, we're going to talk about the inclusive story. That's what we're subjecting this um, segment. We're going to talk about um, Chicago media and media in general and the voices of diversity in various communities, in different communities that really need to be brought out and talk from people who have been kind of pioneers in this field, who have um, grown up in these communities and seen a need and, and gotten into something where they wanted to reflect their communities in mainstream media. Um, and we also have who I'm very excited about, um, and we'll start with her, Sean, is Tracy Bame. And yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Tracy Bame, just looking over her credentials is about three pages of awards and just, you know, like you say, pioneer. You know, this is someone who's been such a huge advocate in the LGBT community, and she's with the Chicago Reader. She was executive editor at Windy City Times. Just kind of the, the list goes on and on of, of what she's done. And we we're, we're going to get into her, her humanitarian work as well and just kind of everything she's done for Chicago. Well, Sean, and, and there's something in particular about her that really kind of um, made me want to reach out to her, which was that her collaborative work um, in the Chicago Independent Media Alliance, which is an organization that when media outlets were suffering the most when the pandemic hit with the recession, this was an organization that said, hey, let's inject some funds into um, the journalistic community, to the people who bring the voices. We're talking about um, organizations that have catered to not only specific communities, but kind of brought light to the issues that they deal with. And I think that's vitally important as we decide how we're going to tell our story as a collective with all the communities involved. Uh, Tracy, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Absolutely our pleasure. So you're on with uh, Sean and Raza. Dante's here too, and he's going to jump in. But uh, Tracy, tell me a little about, first of all, tell us, um, most of our, our listeners know the Chicago Reader, but tell us a little about it, and then tell us about your work with the Chicago Independent Media Alliance. Sure. The Chicago Reader was started in 1971. It was the nation's first free weekly newspaper. Um, it's always been kind of seen as an alternative or alt-weekly. Um, and it, it, it did longer features, it did more deep dives on culture and politics, 
And about a year and a half ago, I was brought on um, as publisher when it was newly independent. It had been run by the Chicago Sun-Times for several years. Um, and it was brought on as newly independent um, in late 2018. And that's when I was brought on as publisher. I co-founded Witty City Times in 1985. So I had experience running community media and they thought that might translate over into Chicago Reader. So tell us, how, what, how has the climate changed? I mean, you started this in 1985. I mean, it, it had a, the LGBT community wasn't even the LGBT back then. I mean, how much have we come forward and how much have you seen over the, the last, you know, 30 years? I, you know, it's unbelievable, really, the progress um, that the, the LGBTQ community, back when I started, it was really mainly called gay and lesbian. Before that was homosexual or homophile. Um, within my lifetime, I was born in 1963, um, it is an unbelievable um, leap forward for a community, but it's only because there were prior civil rights movements like the Black Civil Rights Movement, the American Indian Movement, the um, Immigrant Rights Movement, the Women's Movement, all of those movements not only helped the LGBTQ movement because they were first socially, but they were also first in the courts fighting for their rights. And a lot of those precedents that happened have helped us, like the Supreme Court ruling last week on jobs based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That was very specifically uh, based on prior work by the women's and black civil rights movements. And Tracy, I'm going to ask you, before you got involved and before you gave a voice to that community, what was the landscape like in the Chicago media? What were stories that were important to your community, relevant to what you were dealing with, what maybe friends within the community were dealing with? How were they covered, if at all? So I started in 1984 at a newspaper called Gay Life, and there had been several different gay and lesbian newspapers, um, really going back um, to the 19, early 1960s in Chicago. They were more like newsletters and things like that. But after the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York, a lot of gay newspapers started to spring up too. And um, Gay Life was one of those. It was in Chicago. And and um, a lot of the reason there was a need for a gay press was even through even today, but certainly through the 80s and early 90s, the mainstream media was either ignoring our community, which was the better thing, because when they were covering our community, it was full of stereotypes of pedophilia and that we were spreading HIV AIDS and, and they just weren't doing it in a very nuanced way that was that was representative of the community I was part of. So I, you know, I was a trained journalist, which a lot of the people early on in gay media were not. I went to journalism school. My parents were journalists. So I wanted to put a journalistic lens on these issues. Um, and with my colleagues at Gay Life and then at Windy City Times, we felt like we were covering both the good and the bad things within the gay community that the mainstream media was ignoring or covering badly. And, you know, that kind of brings me to uh, what I wanted to talk to you about as well, Dante, is uh, I think Tracy brings upon a good issue, right? Like, um, if you don't understand the community, the only time you cover it is maybe when there's negative stories that you believe can maybe sens sensationalize something or, or reach out to a particular audience, but it does so negatively. Um, uh, Sean, actually, you and I were speaking about, you were like, how come the only time we hear about coverage uh, in some of these communities is when there's a shooting? It's always the negative coverage. It's always the, you know, like, I don't I don't want to hear about the black community in the bad times. I don't want to hear about the LGBT community about the bad times. Let's, let's hear about the empowering stuff that, and we feel that way in the labor movement. You well, know, you hear about the negatives of the labor movement, never the empowering times of what we always bring to and society. I, and Dante, I want to ask you about that because you grew up on the west side. You were a young man on the city's west side who loved the news, who wanted right. to get into the news. So tell me what made you decide that your story needed to be told and how you envisioned telling it. Uh, you know, I was a news junkie, like you said. <laughs> and uh, 
I remember the first news person or reporter that I saw was Art Norman. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, fortunately, I also had people in my family who influenced me and 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 didn't limit me. You know, like my father and my mother, my father, and then the uncle who was also in uh in radio, but um. Just seeing some of the stories, man, this, some of the things that happened growing up, you do see crime, you do see violence, you know, you see the negative, but you also see the positive, you know, which is like, I look at my parents, I look at, you know, my neighbors that I grew up with in the community who were working hard and putting on block club parties and things like that. But you, so you want to tell those stories too. You understand that there's a balance and, but that balance doesn't come without representation. And so just like Tracy was just saying, you know, it's like you have to have that representation, you know, or that narrative is not going to be told in a way in which or, or in, in an actual factual way. You know, as she said, as she stated with the you know LGBTQ community, they if you can't it's hard to you can't somebody that's that's not that can't really tell that story as well as or that experience as well as they are and that's exactly what i was thinking when you said it it may be factual it may cover the skeletons of what's going on but it doesn't cover the nuances the experiences and the real stories uh, that are within this community and really right. paint a picture well, of the, the real culture experience really the culture. real you know inside look into the culture from with if you're not of that culture that community i mean that's why diversity is so important i mean right. You know, I can sit and talk about what the black community is, but I don't know. I want to right. hear from. And someone. how does that foster understanding, right? Unless you're hearing mm-hmm. the story, unless you're seeing the visual pictures of what's going on and what uh, people are dealing with, how do you really relate to somebody, right? right? If you haven't seen that, if if you're covered and you're in, if you're in your silo, right? Mm-hmm. How do you get that dialogue going? It's kind of like how when people say, "Well, I don't see systemic racism," and are are you black? Are you Latino? Are you you know, Middle Eastern, are you, you know, are you lesbian? Are you gay? Are, you know, have you not, some people don't witness it because look at the system. Mm. And so, you know, you have people who say, well, I don't see it. I don't think it exists. Like you, you're not the person to say that you're not affected by it. Well, and I think that speaks so high, uh, so much about why these videos, when they're released, um, mm-hmm. really captivates people because now they are brought in almost as a witness to account, to see what the experience is like, but because right. without those, you're hearing about it, but you're not seeing it with your, with your own eyes. I remember when my wife, Sarah, um, saw the video, she was looking and she was like, you know, almost in tears because you are relating with this, this gentleman who yeah. you're watching with a knee on his neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if, and, and if you flip the script and you just, all you do is, is take George Floyd and make him white and you say, okay, now, now look at this. Now, how do you feel? Okay. Hmm. And I think that's what people are, you know, some people fail to see the people who see a lot, who oppose what happened or, or any situations like that. You know, you, you, you have to look at it from, you know, the other side of the coin, you know, as a, I'm a journalist, a photojournalist, but also my background is in sociology. And so one of the things that I've always tried to do, even going back to college was to try to see things from both sides of the coin in order to come to a conclusion. And even in this sense, you know, you had like it's I, I've been I've witnessed, you know, police brutality. I've been a victim of police brutality. And so, you know, and it's and, and it's not uncommon in our community. And it's, and that's the sad thing. And it's and it's inflicted on black people, not just by white cops, but by black 
police officers as well. And I'm not saying all police officers are bad, but this is the culture of the police force in our communities and policing in our communities. And, and I want to kind of get into the, the police is an institution, just as media. Mm -hmm. and, and if you um, kind of keep people on the sidelines, don't really get into the issues, you're doing a disservice at all. So Tracy, I want to bring you into um, your work with the Chicago Independent Media Alliance and what you envisioned in terms of um, helping these organizations. First of all, if you could tell us a couple of the, um, the news outlets that the organization has helped and then tell us why you wanted to empower them again. Well, so last summer, um, we started this as a project of the Chicago Reader just to find out what people needed. Um, and one of the things that for sure we saw is that very small organizations and the medium ones, um, we have we have ones as small as Ergo, which is a podcast, the Better Government Association, Chicago Crusader, La Raza, Korea Times. It's a free membership organization. Um, and when COVID struck, we know the reader was devastated. We had a 90% drop in, in paid advertising. And we, within three weeks, created a website, savechicagomedia.org, that launched a month-long campaign. Um, of the 62 members of SEMA, uh, 43 of them joined together, um, including papers like the Oak, in Oak Park, and papers that are geographically centered, as well as papers that are by and for African-American, Latino, Asian, and LGBTQ. So we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, people were able to give to one organization or all at once. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised that two thirds of the money that came in, people selected just divided among everybody. Um, so in all, we raised $104,000 from individual donors and another $60,000 from foundations in a match. So over $160,000 was raised um, in this effort that was really a pilot project, which I think could raise lots more money next year with more than three weeks advanced planning. The website can be better designed and all sorts of other ways that we can do outreach and involve even more media outlets. My goal was is to lift all votes because if we only have one independent media voice left in Chicago, that voice is gonna fold. We need each other. The ecosystem needs authentic voices from and by communities of many different kinds in order to help one another. Sometimes we might in the future combine editorial efforts um, and sometimes it might be on business efforts. And right now we're really just in the pilot phase to see what people want and how they can work together. And it's being run by staff at the reader. Um, who knows, someday it might become something independent. Um, I've been part of independent alliances without staff, so I know those can fail. So our goal was to try to staff this up and see for a couple of years if it could have an impact. And again, I think it's important to talk about what this means to the community, what this means to the viewership. I mean, we all know of ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, Univision, right? These are the mainstream media outlets. But I want to remind you, one of the biggest uh, cultural changes and paradigm shifts in Chicago was the video release of Laquan McDonald, which was not broken by any of these multi-million dollar news organizations, but instead by a freelance journalist, uh, Brandon Smith, who took it upon himself to take that investment and in that stake and, and follow this through. And then when it was released, of course, it, it just blew up and people saw this transgression um, and wanted to make it right. But again, I think this really is paramount to understanding what independent media and what independent journalists can do. Dante, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that what we're seeing right now is something completely different. Um, we, we, Michonne spoke of this earlier about how these kids are being galvanized via social media. And you're seeing a lot of kids, I mean, and, and not just kids, just, just people in general, who are gravitating towards watching and getting their news on social media. Uh, some good, some bad. But 
you know, to see these protests and to see the rallies and everything like that. And a lot of the stuff has been galvanized via social media and just connections and just, you know, whether it be Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever you see. And you see in people who are they have these lines of communication open, more lines of communication open than ever before. And so, um, I mean, it is it is amazing to see. But it's just like you, we have to we have to keep doing it. And just what Tracy was just saying is it is important for us to have these legitimate voices like hers and, and like other outlets like the WBECs of the world mm. who are out here putting, you know, our nonprofit, but they are putting out, a, you know, an educational uh, tool for us. To learn well, and Rousa just mentioned that Laquan McDonald shooting, <clears throat> you know, where was what what's the difference now? I mean, you know, I mean, that was a few years ago and right. and the outcry wasn't as much there. And, and like we always were saying, like, is this the straw that kind of is finally breaking the camel's back? I mean, this is so much outrage and, and rioting and, and the, you know, all over the world. Like, it was oh, yeah. global. I mean, yeah. what's kind of what do you think has been the shift? Uh, it's repeated. Just 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 the repeated seeing. So these these videos is constantly seeing them. You know the Ahmaud Arbery's, the uh, you know you have George Floyd, you have Laquan McDonald, you have all these instances now that you're starting to see, and it's becoming more and more visual. And not just that, you're also seeing a lot of the confrontations, daily confrontations that we're seeing through people who have you know racist confrontations in stores or whether it be with police or whoever. It's 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 a buildup. It's a build up and it's and it's been building up in our communities, but it hasn't been being seen until now. And so now you have cell phone video, mm -hmm. um, you have social media, you have the ability to to go live off of a cell phone so you can instantaneously show, you know, some social injustice being done. So my question, is it getting worse or are we just seeing it more? We're seeing it more. It's always been yeah. here. It's always been here. And I do think that the rhetoric uh, coming from the top, uh, from the White House, mm. hasn't helped. Mm. You know, when you have leadership who is not being uh, a mediator, but instead being an agitator, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't help. And so it, it you know, I've, and and I don't want to get political, but I just don't I don't agree with with some of the things that Doc, that, that Donald Trump says. And uh, you know, because what he does is is not good for anybody. And I've said this to people before. I say he's not good for even his followers or people who are against him because what it does is it, create, it creates anger in everybody. Everybody's riled up. Everybody on either side, if you form or against them, you're riled up. And, that is, and, and that's a recipe for disaster. It's a, it's a pot brewing to burst. Yep. And it's yep. always, you know, and you know what? We always talk about it. Leadership matters. Yep. You know, well, absolutely. And we have to hit our first commercial break, but we're going to be back with our guests, uh, Tracy Bame and uh, Dante Williams. We're also going to bring on uh, Kenny, Ken Bedford. I call him Kenny. I have to make sure not to do it on the radio. You may have read about him this week. He's with the ABC7 uh, Chicago. He's a photojournalist that you may have read was injured in doing his uh, course of duties. He's been doing this for over 45 years. This is the first time he's ever been injured. Also a pioneer um, journalist in the black community in Chicago, and we'll be getting to him. Um, so we're going to keep this conversation going. There's a lot to talk about, but first, this commercial break. This is Lewis Geyer from GWC Injury Lawyers. Now that cannabis is legal in Illinois, an understanding of the law and the risks associated with ingesting cannabis is critically important. Under the Cannabis Act, you can legally ingest marijuana only in a very limited number of places, not in public, 
not on government or school premises, and not even in your own condo or apartment if your landlord has a no-smoking policy. What is a positive test potentially relief to your rights in what is area? Employment, work injuries, and driving. So if your employer has a zero-tolerance drug and alcohol policy, you can be terminated if you fail a drug test, even though your cannabis consumption was legal. If you're hurt on the job and test positive for cannabis, the legal presumption is that your accident was caused in part because of the cannabis, and your workers' compensation rights can be totally denied. DUI laws have not changed. Impaired means impaired. And a DUI due to cannabis or alcohol can ruin your career. If you want to indulge in legal THC before you ingest, read up on your rights at gwclaw.com. Megan Financial is an independent retirement and financial services firm dedicated to the working men and women of organized labor. Megan provides straightforward, custom-fit financial advice and specializes in defined benefit and defined contribution pension plans as well as participant and retiree health and welfare benefits. Megan Financial has the knowledge and experience to navigate the union member through all phases of life. Call 708-444-1090. Securities and advisory services offered through Satera Advisors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, a broker-dealer, and registered investment advisor. Satera is under separate ownership from any other named entity. Office location at 5321 South 94th Avenue, Orland Park, Illinois, 60462. All right, if you're just tuning in, you got Sean Allen, Raza Siddiqui, Life, Love, and the Grind. We're hearing from Tracy Bame, Chicago Independent Media Alliance publisher. We're going to get into some of her humanitarian work, and she's, like I said, the list goes on and on, and we're joined live with Dante Williams, Mm-hmm. And, and Dante is actually, um, I, I got to get this out there. I got to give Dante uh, a plug, but he's with Diesel World Productions. So he's covered uh, satirically some of uh, the oh, yeah. experiences. Tell us real quickly, real briefly about that as well. Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, I team with um, my uh, partner, uh, Jay Davis. He's my business partner and uh, he writes a lot of the sketches. And we did come up with a sketch called Is This Racist? And uh, that actually pokes fun at some racist incidents because you know sometimes and just just as what we're doing right now we're educating people people sometimes don't know and they don't understand like if a situation is racist or if they're doing something that could be perceived as being racist so you know i think through through comedy also we try to teach and try to and try and give lessons i don't think everything has to be all about you know putting putting your fist in somebody's face and and doing this and doing that. i think you can make somebody laugh and then in the end, they can, they'll get it. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up. We're going to be joined by Ken Bedford, uh, ABC7 photographer. But, you know, like you say, laughing is what kind of helped move everyone forward. I mean, these mm-hmm. incredible comedians. And, and Tracy, I'd like your opinion, too. I mean, even, you know, Ellen kind of bringing light and laughter to the community kind of helped move us all forward. When we're able to laugh about it and talk with it and enjoy each other, it kind of, you can't be mad at someone when you're having fun and kind of laughing. It, it makes them likable and relatable, right? Absolutely. At the end of the day, it, it, it's like... You know, it, it gives you that dimension mm-hmm. of someone else. So yeah, and we've had incredible comedians on on all walks, women, men, you know, blacks, LGBTQ. It's and it's helped move us all kind of forward a little bit to kind of see it in a different light. So um, well, well, let's talk about diversity, right? Um, the whole world is talking about diversity. I was listening to my wife, who's on a uh, corporate conference call where they were sitting down and talking about diversity and reflective. Um, 
um, voices within organizations. And really, we're given an opportunity to talk about it now. So I want to I want to ask both Tracy and Dante, but we'll start with Tracy about um, how should we capitalize on this? I mean, with editorial, what is the obligation that that some outlet should have into getting representative demo, uh, demographic voices? To speak to well, the community. the problem is that there have been fits and starts of this for decades, mm -hmm. um, including for women in the 1960s. My mother was forced out at the Tribune because she wanted to cover serious news and they wanted her to cover the society. Piece. There have been numerous um, examples of especially black and Latino reporters who've been basically forced out because they haven't, um, the, the, the systems haven't allowed for their full participation in publications as large as the New York Times. Um, so this isn't the the problem isn't that people um, that there aren't talented people out there. The problem is even when they're hired, they're often hired in a token way, and the systems don't change in order to make the system better. Right? Those folks are either represented. They're you know one person is asked to represent their entire race, um, and then they're not given the tools and the um, inclusion in the power structure. So it can't be that you're just bringing in people at the low level. You have to bring people at management level at the C-suite level, at the CEO level, um, to make significant change. They can't be alone. They need to be uh, boistered by policies and other people. Um, and then in the LGBTQ space, it's interesting. Sometimes allies are the most important for us because many people can't afford to come out of the closet. So having a welcoming environment is, is multi-pronged, and it's not as simple as having a, a DEI or diversity um, inclusion type exercise. It has to be at the at the management level to make change. And why not the ownership level, actually? Right. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. I, yeah, I, and, and I was just saying the same thing to Sean earlier, mm -hmm. was that, um, yeah, there needs to be more representation in, in regards to management, uh, the decision makers, because these are the people who can help change the policies. And, you know, or like in our case, coverage of the media, but also who covers what and the sensitivity towards those communities. You know, if if we have people in there who are diverse backgrounds, they can actually help, you know, and educate people, say, this is what is a sensitive topic for the black community. This is what a sensitive topic is for, you know, the LGBT community. Well, and, and let's not forget sources, right? If you're from the community, if you've had that experience, mm -hmm. if you've grown up with people, right. you're going to be able to have the sources to tell that story exactly. far better than someone who's market hopped, which in our industry means come from a smaller market that when you've been part of that community. Exactly. Well, and in today's day too, with social media, it's so much in your face that media now more than ever has, I feel like such a stronger obligation to show the good stuff. I mean, if you're only showing the bad shootings in Chicago in a mm -hmm. south side of the west side communities. Well, they're really pushing the narrative. Are you even going to be relevant anymore? Because when you are competing with people who are telling their own stories, sharing mm -hmm. their own experiences, um, well, I mean, let's, for instance, they talk about black Twitter, they talk about uh, everything else. When you are telling your own story, but then you are dealing with um, media outlets who are covering the public trust or only telling a segment of the story, are you even relevant? Um, well, I don't know. Are you Dante? Are you, are you Tracy? You guys yeah. jump in. I don't even want to call on who, who, whoever's going to I mean, you know, I agree right now there's so much competition and, and I'm going off of what Tracy said earlier. It's having legitimate sources still is important. Mm -hmm. You know, having it, having a legitimate source that, that people can, can go to and, and go, you know, go there and as a reference tool, 
You know, uh, it, it, it's very, very important because we do have a lot of misinformation out here. So people can go to different sources. They can go to Facebook. They can look at the friends post or what they share. But a lot of times it could be misinformation. And so you do need legitimate sources. One of the things I try to educate people on in terms of the media is we're legally liable for things mm-hmm. that we report. So when people say the media does this, this they do that. We might we may not put out and I hate to generalize and include myself in that, but I'm part of the media. We may not put out the right story, the the, the exact story, but to falsify anything, we can be held legally liable. Now, on the flip side, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, if you put out misinformation, misleading information, you're not you're not legally liable. And you can also mislead your followers. If you have if you have thousands of followers, I heard something about that in a small little election we had a couple of years ago. I, I thought I heard something in one of these uh, papers about mm-hmm. that there was an issue with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, you you bring out a good point. But it's not only, for instance, the social media, but it's other born journalists who go out mm-hmm. there and start publications to tell that story yep. and that voice. Tracy, why don't you tell me what, of the organizations you funded? Um, was everyone able to pull through? Were, were some unfortunately um, not able to to be self sufficient and self reliant even after the injection of funds? And if that did happen, what kind of voices did we lose? So right now, the, the funds were just distributed a week ago, and then the matching funds are coming next week. Um, some of the there, it's interesting because a lot of these independent media outlets are just passion projects. So there's one or two people or five or 10 people. Um, and they are not in some ways as vulnerable as a tribune, which has been laying off and furloughing and be easy laid off 12 people because they're so small. Right. But I do see that last year we lost the print edition of the Chicago defender. We lost boy totally because the tribune shut it down. Um, I do see that uh, there's a, there is a cliff coming over the next probably six to 12 months where we could lose some of these voices. Mm. Um, it's something that I've been pushing the foundation world to wake up to. Um, over the last few months, I've been meeting with a lot of larger foundations saying, look, even a cash injection of $5,000 can sustain some of these small outlets for several months. Um, in the case of the reader, our, our payroll and such is a lot higher than that, uh, but we're doing a lot of creative fundraising. One of the things we found during the fundraiser is that some people definitely are much better at raising money than others, but the minimum somebody got out of it was around, I think, $1,800. Um, some found that some of them raised as much as $8,000 individually that got matched by foundations, um, but most of the people got probably an average of three or $4,000, um, and that's a lot for some of the small outlets. It's not a ton for the reader, but it, what it shows me is there's a capacity for more. If we work together and we get even more matching dollars from foundations, that there's a much larger capacity for people to support community media that has been tapped into yet. Again, like I said, uh, two thirds of the money that came in, people wanted us to split it among everybody evenly, which was really a surprise. Um, I thought maybe because everybody was sending people to the website from their media outlet, that people would just choose their outlet, but they wanted us to support the whole media ecosystem. So I think that means there's a great potential for us to raise more next year. Well, and I got a question. Me and Raza, uh, we talk about this. What is the future of media? When you have social media, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, where are we going forward? You know what? With all these people. I, Sean, if you will indulge me, I ask you to indulge me. Will you indulge me? Yeah. You'll indulge me? I, you know, I'd like to bring on our next guest to weigh in on this. If I want to hear from him. Yeah, if we can bring on Kenny Bedford. Kenny Bedford has been um, one of the longest tenured photographers 
in traditional broadcast media. But here's the thing. I, I mean, the guy has been doing this 45, 45 years. years. He owns social media, too. So I think I'd love to hear how he weighs in on this. Kenny, are you with us right now? And he's probably updating his post. Oh, no, no, no. There he is. Kenny. Hey, you're on with uh, Sean Allen, Raza Siddiqui, Dante, and Tracy. Um, I don't know if you heard the question. Hey, Ken. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining us, Ken. Hey, so, Ken, um, yeah, the question was, um, first of all, tell us about your experience. I, I mean, you got into this um, 45 years ago. You've won several awards, the Peter Elizagor Award. Um, man, you used to work for uh, Peter with Peter Jennings, if I'm not mistaken. Oprah, too, I think I heard. Young lady by the name of Oprah. Oprah Winfrey, let me start. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. Uh, in 1972, October 1972, and the very first story that was here, there was a fire at, uh, uh, there was a plane crash that Michelle Clark was killed in at, 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 Mid, at Midway. And I think that was part of the end of the Watergate uh, investigations, and they found a lot of money on the plane and all of that. That's my first big story here. And then I think there was a fire at McCormick Place. But I started in 1972 in film, and the media was filmed. And, uh, <laughs> And in those days, I had a wooden tripod. I had a, uh, there were five of us in the car. And Dante might laugh at that. Yep. <laughs> the cameraman, myself, there was an electrician, a sound engineer, a field producer, and a reporter. We would all be in the same car on a two-way radio. And we'd go, and that's how we would cover our stories. Highly unionized, because those days, we made the transition from, uh, from the filmmakers. And they were highly unionized. So you had to have every every category was unionized so the guy like i couldn't touch a light i couldn't do audio i couldn't fix a microphone that was his job and we had a lot of jobs and they would also back in those days if guys were caught freelancing the union steward would be out he would card check a guy on the street and say let me see your card if you're not in a local then off you go so it was very organized but i started like i said i started in 1972 it was film was the medium wooden tripod, 16 millimeter film. And then I went from that to videotape. From videotape, we moved into uh, disc recording. And now we're into uh, digital cards. Well, Kenny, and we go a step further right now. Oh, you know what? I got to call you Ken on radio. I, I get a little informal sometimes. But uh, Ken, now we get into the whole thing where we're expected to do social media pushes too, right? So you go from, like you described, a situation where you had multiple people working on telling a story, a real investment in that story, to try to get as much as you can, not only on television sometimes, but also on social media. What do you think about that? Like, I, I mean, is that a disservice? Is that just a natural progression? Uh, how do you see it from your days of carrying a, a wooden tripod to now a phone realistically and in real time bringing this to the world? What do you think? The industry has come a long way technically uh, on the side of journalism side, on the journalistic side. I look at it as there are too many people who feel they can, they can uh, input their, their own ideas out without a lot of research and then that's not good for journalism because you're getting a lot of stories that are put out there like uh they have been fat checked mm -hmm. and so that could hurt his birth back in the day if you will uh we would make sure that story would be as correct as possible before we would release it but because there's so much competition right now the main thing is get there and show that your reporters on the scene that we go live before we have gathered the facts and then you know, because of competition, we want to beat NBC, we want to beat uh, CBS. So we may go on with our reporter 
as we just arrive on the scene as opposed to waiting and then talking to people and finding out what happened and then go live and really have something to say. And I think that's the nature of the business now. But uh, uh, I think was certainly better in terms of content back then than now there's a lot less uh, corrections were being made back then. And now there's a lot of corrections being made now because they jump too fast. Well, can you say about, you know, freelancing and, and realistically, everyone almost is a freelancer now because everyone has a cell phone. Mm. So you're videotaping a story that goes viral almost before the, the news media even has a chance to kind of run it at times, yeah, right? You're absolutely right. Let me give you a good example. I've been working at ABC and in my career over 40, close to 50 years. As a, as, a, as a photojournalist, and I've never, ever shot a tornado video of, of a tornado, but because there's cameras on phones, there's so many people that are out shooting pictures, there are literally thousands and thousands of videos of, of, a, of a tornado, a funnel cloud. I've never seen one in person. I've been shooting all these years. So that's just going to show you just how many people have cameras, just how many people can interpret stuff. And like Dante said earlier, that with the uh, uh, George Floyd situation, uh, this young girl, 17, 18 years old, she stayed on the on the shot that it really changed the world mm, or, yeah. or is the process of changing the world just by holding a simple phone camera on a video of a murder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I mean, this these are kind of unprecedented times where everyone's kind of on the scene and everybody's now. And, and now, like I say, so now where are we going forward in news media? Because as great as that can be and change the world, now you have these these influencers or these people with maybe millions and millions of followers like a Donald Trump or certain people that their, their narrative and their message gets out and it influences so many people. Well, well, you know, what's interesting about that is they've really been able to bypass that analysis, right? They've been mm -hmm. able to bypass the scrutiny by mainstream media by capitalizing on these um, direct ways and direct mm -hmm. messages to get out there. And I think that's something that uh, uh, Kenny Tracy and Dante, that we want to talk to you about right after this break, talking about the uh, how we reinvent ourselves and stay relevant in the media. Um, right after these breaks. Life, Love and the Grind is proudly sponsored by Rich Lewandowski and our friends at Breaker Press. Chicagoland's top choice for union printing. We're a third generation family owned business that has been helping unions and political campaigns win since 1976. This is a little behind the scenes about uh, what we're doing. This is how we plan for the next segment. So again, want to make sure that we're engaged and going uh, forward with the relevant discussion when we come Come back on air, which should be after this for your supporters' front yards. Breaker Press can help you reach the voters you need. Call Rich at 773-852. I want you to ask him question. When we come back, I, I want to say, uh, as a guy who's younger in this, talking to a guy who pioneered, ask him whatever question you got. Actually, do you want to bring us back, or do you want us to bring us back? No, you bring us back. I'll ask <laughs> Life, Love, and the Grind. You're joined uh, by Raza Siddiqui, Sean Allen. We got a couple of great guests today that we're very excited about. Kenny Bedford with ABC7 Photographer. Almost there. 50 years. Can you, can you believe that? Um, so we're kind of weighing in on like old school, new school media and the relevancy of it. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Tracy Bain. Um, publisher at the uh, Chicago Reader and Dante Williams. Um, and one of the things I thought would be kind of cool is Dante's been doing this a while, but nowhere as long as Kenny, uh, Ken Bedford has. So I want to give- uh, I don't have the experience that he has. That's, uh, 
I don't want to make it seem like it's the longest, but this experience. He has a lot of experience, and he's met a lot of famous people I, that I know of. Uh, he's just quite a few things. He's got this. Yeah, go ahead. A lot of people give me a lot of credit for being uh, the oldest photographer here, but actually, Ike, 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 Ike is over at WG. Yeah, Ike, yeah. Ike came camera in a few months before I started. Oh, really? So he's got you beat by a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just got to say, I learned a lot from you, man. I just, uh, Ken, I just wanted to tell you that. So, well, thanks so much. Oh, yeah. I should be looking for checking them out. No. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a show of you pioneers. Are, you had a treat. That's what I like. I'd like to be able to pass the torch to people like you, the young generation that you have to pass when you reach that point so that we keep this. this I'm, 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 I'm quickly getting to that point. Proud of you. Hey, Ken, is there going to be an industry going forward? I mean, it's so rapidly changed. Like you said, there are so many people who are um, journalists because they have a cell phone. And Tracy, I actually want to bring you in on this conversation as well, because um, there's a lot of publications. We're talking about the importance of these small independent media outlets. Is there a danger in too much factioning of, uh, of information like that? Um, I, I mean, I can certainly go first. Um, I don't think there's a danger at all. I think it's all needed because each of them have, even if they reach a thousand people, those thousand people may not have gotten their news from another source. So I think it is important to have curated news of some kind, otherwise unfiltered. Every, if everything was unfiltered on Facebook, which so much is, um, we would we would definitely be losing our, our tether to facts. Um, so I do believe that all these outlets are great. They're also good training grounds. Some of those journalists go on to mainstream media and they come, then they come with better sources and, and better experience. We, we have a lot of interns from the journalism schools. So these community media outlets are important training grounds all the way around. Um, I, I don't know what the future might hold, but I do hope that it's not just all a hobby for all the people doing it. I hope that there's still careers available so that people can be full-time journalists. But I always believe there will be journalists just like musicians. It might be that a lot of them are doing it as freelance or part-time or even as volunteer to get the word out. It's it's in many people's blood and they're gonna figure out a way to get that news out. And, and Ken, just like yeah, say, go ahead, please. I'd just like to say that, that the need for a story to be told is not gonna ever change. I think what's changing is is who owns the, the news out <laughs> the news organization as these as these special interest groups come in and begin to buy in and tell this story exclusively. That is a danger. But in terms of People wanted to find out the truth and information that would never go away. Is there a danger, Dante? What, what do you I, see? Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the answer to that is that we have to make sure that we have to make sure that us, as the as the, uh, the reader, the viewer, the listener, we have to cross-reference as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And this way, we're not getting just one one side because right now everybody's doing an editorial count. Well, they always used to like say, "Don't believe everything you read." Right? right. They they always used to say, "Make sure that what you're reading, that you're fact checking." And right. I think that's more important than ever because of all these sources. And and, and, and just do research. I mean, like like Ken said, you don't want to you know look at just one source. I know some people look at you know one station or they look at you know read one you know newspaper or whatever but it's important to look at other you know other sources you know that's just i like i said going back to my sociological background and doing research that's what we were always taught to get out yeah. of your echo chamber right yeah. a lot of times you're in your community you're talking to the same people you have your principles and your ideas but why not challenge those why not see right. what other perspectives are out there and i think that's <laughs> an exciting opportunity we get sometimes with 
independent. And you media. can't just open up Facebook and get it all from Facebook. Right. Because exactly. we kind of realize that a lot of that is false and they're not even fact checking right. and, and they're kind of openly admitting that I'm not going to fact check it. So we can do whatever we want. So you have to really kind of think outside the box and kind of discuss things in different uh, avenues, you know. Right. Absolutely. Because these are changing times. And the biggest danger, and the biggest danger will be we have to have somebody as leadership in our country that is not uh, uh, discrediting the media as yeah. they were as fake news. Because that is having an effect on all of oh, yeah. A dangerous effect. Exactly. A very dangerous effect. I mean, I mean, the best way to look at it is is say, okay, people who don't see a problem with that. What if you had a president who said fake cops? And who who looked at all police officers as being bad? If you if you had a president who who discredited anybody else, and I mean, and, and think of the danger that they would be put put in at that, you know, just from that comment. So I mean, I think you know, like you said, Ken, it's it's we definitely have to take take charge. I just want I had a question for you and and Tracy as well because you know I I've been in TV for 17 years but i just want to know what do you think has changed positively in tv and in media and i, I guess i'll start with tracy because i know you've 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 had a you've had a, a struggle on your end in the in the publishing world yeah i mean certainly newspapers are the most at risk of being lost and newspapers provide um, as Ken was saying, um, you have more chance to edit. You have people, more people involved in a story so that there's more fact-checking. So losing actual newspapers. But the one thing that's gotten better with the rise of the Internet is that there are the, we need gatekeepers, but the old gatekeepers did a bad job. We had mostly straight white men running the world, including the media, and they were keeping the good stories out. They were they were stereotyping whole groups of people. So we need we still need gatekeepers, but now the internet provides many many more people an opportunity um, to to create their own media if they're not seeing their own stories reflected. So there's positives in that, but the bad thing is that a lot of the resources that were available to media 30 years ago are going away. She's exactly right. I look at that from the standpoint as she said, you know, we need the gatekeepers to make sure because people right now, if you look at Fox TV, if you look at CNN, most of the media focused on the looting. Mm-hmm. They, they did the what and not focus on the why. And there's yeah. a lot of stories as to why. I've even asked so many I've asked Father Flager, I've asked different people, Reverend Jackson, why, and, and so many people ask, why do the looters burn up in their own area? And I said, what is the answer? And and Father Flager told me, quite frankly, when you're upset and angry, you slam the thing that's closest to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that I had to think about that for a minute. Well, most, most crime is proximity mm-hmm. more than anything. Yeah. You know, yep. like how they perpetuate black on black crime. That's right. There's white on white crime. Exactly. It's more proximity exactly. than, than anything else. See, there's a reason there's a reason why there is protest and we need to find out what that reason yep. is and let's talk about that okay mm-hmm. people went in and stole some mattresses and some beds and some tennis shoes okay we get that nobody's condoning that nobody nobody is condoning it even even to the point that they're talking about the big topic of defunding the police that's a misled story because i'm sure most people most people in our community the african african american community do not want the police disbanded i don't but mm-hmm. maybe re- redirecting some of those funds that's a good story because 
on the west side of Chicago, they're about to put up a hundred and eighty million dollar training center. Right. Well, is that really needed? Maybe they can take that money and put it into some social services, and then you wouldn't need it. Right. Or pull the, the police out of the schools and put money in there and make the parents be accountable, and then you wouldn't need police. I never had police in my school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. But I agree. I mean, it's it's. It, I think it's the balance. I think it's it's the balance that that we need. Um, yeah in media and telling these stories is, you know, you have to tell the good and the bad and, you know, there has to be a leadership who's going to say, okay, we have an obligation to tell the facts and what happened in this crime, but also let's shine a light on the positive things. Well, I think it's twofold, right? We need leadership, but we also need investment. And I think one Mm -hmm. of, I mean, we had a lot to talk about today, but I want to kind of close on um, or at least address that um, the investment might be challenged by COVID-19. I kind of want to talk to each three of you about um, how will companies use this COVID to get rid of union journalism jobs and the investment uh, within the communities. I I mean, obviously, there were already economic um, considerations. We saw a Hawaii newspaper, which represented the the Hispanic market closed down with economic considerations. Now we see the possibility. I mean, um, in in the feeder column a few weeks ago, one of the major stations announced that there's going to be um, layoffs within their uh, ranks. How is this going to affect us going forward? Well, real quick, you know, Ken, you said, you know, the, the power the unions used to have in the 70s, everyone had their own craft. I mean, they had so much control over all these different jobs, which kept the city really booming. I mean, where do you, do you have you seen the changes in a negative way to these unions and these union jobs? Yeah, the companies, uh, the companies are squeezing people out. And if, uh, let me just get back to this one point, is that these companies are not keeping their, their, their agreement with the government. Uh, the government said, we will pay you three months of salary that you would have paid your employees for being off. And now why are those people being laid off? There will be, I don't think we're ever gonna go back and uh, uh, to the full percentage of working in the office. These studios are gonna close down. People will be writing their stories from home. People will be, we're in the cars, we're working from, from the cars and that's gonna save these companies money. These right. companies may why be- go back to real estate when our mortgages are paying the leases in a way? These companies are saying stuff like, okay, for instance, we made $50 million profit last year. So this year we made $40 million and it's moving about the $10 million that they lost. It's not bottom line yet. They lose the $50 million, then I can see them saying, okay, now we have to have layoffs, we have to take it. But right. it's all profit margin. And see, that's what the greed factor is, is hurting the industry. It's, right. it's, it's hurting America. And unions might be that only. Uh, Tracy, you want to weigh in on this? Oh, oh, absolutely. The, the corporations have taken advantage of every kind of thing to bust unions. Um, and we just saw a university bust a, a union um, in the West Suburbs because of COVID. Um, and the Chicago Tribune has been doing furloughs and layoffs. They've laid off 12 people. I definitely think that they use this as an excuse to go after it. Chicago Reader is a union shop. Um, we have not laid off any of our uh, editorial people. In fact, we decided last week to go to a bi-weekly format in order to take people over paper. Um, you know, we're going to be converting to a nonprofit. Um, so, you know, we're extremely pro-union. We're going to do our very best to keep all of our union jobs. In the meantime, corporations are trying to use this as an excuse. Well, and I just want to real quickly, uh, Kenny, I know that, uh, Ken, I know you have to jump off real quick because you've got uh, something else that uh, when our listeners are done with this program, they might want to hear it. Tell us about what you uh, do come uh, four o'clock here. 
have a radio show on 95.1 FM. It's called On the Red Carpet, where I deal with uh, celebrities, politicians, steppers, and skaters. I'm a stepper promoter. Uh, what happened is that we're going to have an exclusive announcement. I'll give it to you. <laughs> Since you're my good friend. Yeah. Uh, you are, uh, on Monday, they're going to announce the fact that the Bud Billick and African Festival will be canceled for this year. Oh, wow. So we're going to announce that today. So you got it on your show because of COVID. Um, uh, well, you know, that's sad to hear. And, and, and again, uh, the reason being the Chicago Defender, one of the leading voices um, for Chicago's black community, obviously started the Brad Billiken Parade, a quick history lesson to um, the interns at the time to bring them into the community, to introduce the community. And uh, obviously we want everyone to stay safe, but I think it, it, it's a good point about the relevance of what local community um, reflective journalism is about. So I think that was a perfect way to end it. Can uh, I know like all roads lead to the union too. Well, yeah, strengthen the, the working people. I'll let you go because I know you've got to get um, prepared for your radio show. But uh, Dante, anything? I mean, I, that, that's sad news to me. Show. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. All right, thanks, thanks you. Yeah, I participated in the Bud Billiken Parade a few years also, and uh, yeah, it's so it's, it's it's sad state, but I'm confident that we'll get back to normal. Uh, so hopefully next year we'll be back to normal. Well, we need to rebuild the, the society that's kind of crumbled. We need to rebuild the union movement. And uh, mm -hmm. I want to thank all of our guests, Tracy Bain, Ken Bedford, Dante Williams. Uh, we had a lot to talk about. And I don't this could have been a three-hour show. We scratched the surface. And you know what? Maybe it will be a three-hour show. What well, we got you, uh, Tracy uh, and Dante. You know, we've got podcasts that we do in the week. But I think that this is a discussion that needs to be had. And there's a lot of people who are interested. So we'll look forward to uh, continuing that on Life, Love, and the Grind as well. But thank you to everyone for joining us today. And um, uh, is Sean, anything you want to say? No, it's a great show. I just hope that everything keeps moving forward. LGBT community, you know, let's not just make Black Lives Matter. Let's like make Black Lives better. Let's move this uh, economy back along and let's rebuild these labor unions and let's get this America what it used to be. And let's keep up the grind. See you next week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.